This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heartland Daily Podcast. This is Anne-Marie Schieber of Healthcare News. Do we suffer from too much health care? In the U.S., we spend about $12,530 a person on health care. That is about 20% of GDP. Yet the country has gaps in outcomes. On COVID, the U.S. ranked 18th in the world, having the highest number of deaths. Somewhat related to that, the U.S. has one of the highest obesity rates in the world. We spent billions of dollars on healthcare during the pandemic, yet other problems emerged. Deaths from drug overdoses and increased suicide. In fact, in 2020, life expectancy dropped the largest decline since World War II. Can too much healthcare make things worse, not better? My guest today recently wrote about this in an article on Medium titled, Why Doesn't Healthcare Improve Health? George Hosu is a machine learning research engineer who has some background in the healthcare industry. Welcome. Welcome. And thanks. Uh, sorry. Hello. And, and uh, thanks for having <laughs> me here. Um, George, what prompted your interest in this topic? Um, so I guess my interest in this topic has a lot to do with my, my interest in um, what I call meta science in general. So essentially evaluating the ways that uh, science is done and how the resulting knowledge can be used, interpreted, framed, and, and, and built upon. And really healthcare and longevity are a, an area of particular interest to me um, because everybody encounters the medical system at some point. Uh, no matter where you are in the world or how healthy a life you live, uh, medical decisions will end up being among the most important decisions in your life. So, so I think that the sort of clear view on, on what medicine can and, and can't actually do for you is an important thing to to build ideally before you have to, to take those medical decisions. And and then as a last point, I would I would add that like the efficacy of healthcare in, in uh, particular um, is interesting because, as you said, we do, we, and when I say we here, really, I mean like most developed countries, and nowadays even most countries is called developing, uh, spend a lot of health on healthcare. And we have these amazing interventions. When you look at the actual trials, it seems like we could be saving so many human lives and adding so many quality life years. Um, Yet, when you look at those results mirrored in the real world, uh, it does seem like there's a, a missing piece there or a, or a mechanism that's making the things that sound so nice on paper uh, not work at their full potential. That, that, is, that is really true. And, you know, look at the U.S., which spends the most than any other country in the world on health care. And still, you know, we have some alarming things. Like I mentioned earlier, the opiate overdose um, numbers went up instead of going down over 10 years and trying to combat this problem or our obesity rates. We are like number one or number two in the world. And, of course, that contributed a lot to COVID deaths. Um you give a lot of credit in your article to a man named Robin Hansen, 
Tell us who this researcher is and what was so uh, famous about his studies in this area? Yeah, so uh, so I think just to clarify uh, this a bit, like Robin Hansen himself is not a researcher in the medical field. He's an economist, which runs a, a blog called Overcoming Bias. Um, I would say he's a very um, particular economist and that his interests are very wide ranging. And, and he often has a good eye for um, areas where the lack of market incentives um, leads to, let's say, bad outcomes. And, and I think uh, fun not intended. And, um, you know, he's the first to, to point out, the first that I've read uh, to point out, though not the first in the world to point out that um, there is certainly, you know, some amount of studies trying to look at whether or not um, giving people more access to healthcare actually improves outcomes, both in the soft sense of outcomes like um, blood pressure and cholesterol and whatnot, and then the hard sense of does it actually improve uh, lifespan, right? Does it reduce mortality? Does it re- result in people being obviously more able and, and happy and feeling better? Um, well, you're right. I mean, we have um, this tendency to always want to fix everything. And we have all these things at our disposal and we kind of discount the, you know, there's always risk with treatment and we sort of discount that. You, you, um, you know, Robin Hansen also mentioned this uh, real interesting study that I think most people in the U.S. are acquainted with, which is the Medicaid study. And they actually did a trial where they kept people out of Medicaid for a couple of years. It was based in Oregon. And there was a lottery system and they could only take in so many people and they left a large pool out. And then they looked at the outcomes of these two groups. So you had one group that had access to health care and another group that didn't. And at the end of the day, the one that didn't have the health care was, I think, did even a little bit better than the one that was treated that had access to Medicaid. So there is some some um, truth to this. You also mentioned another study that was done in, or I I don't know whether it's a study, but some work in the Netherlands that showed that general practitioners that used alternative medicine, which is kind of like a placebo, and got better results. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So so first, but I will say with with the Oregon Health Experiment, uh, I I think that that one, like there is a lot of... um, debate there to be to be had in how you interpret the results and i think the general consensus uh, might be that that even came in favor of the insurance though maybe not as as strongly as people would want it to believe uh, i think there's a, a larger experiment a slightly older one and potentially even more more relevant because it was done back in the day when um you know we were picking less uh, high-hanging fruits of healthcare, which was the the Rand health insurance experiment, where the results were much more uh, conclusive towards no effect. And yeah, then then there is this uh, interesting uh, Dutch study, which is an epidemiological study, right? Like it looks at past data. Uh, but what they found out is that patients who had GPs which were trained in alternative medicine, which is definitely not a guarantee that they were using alternative medicine, but you know, one can assume if a, a GP certifies himself as trained in alternative medicine, uh, they probably do use that to some extent, actually had better outcomes uh, in terms of uh, both spend and in terms of mortality. 
And, the, you know, the fun thing is you can look at that and you can say like, oh, well, you know, some alternative medicine, you know, maybe works to some extent, right? You just don't understand the mechanism. But funnily enough, one of those uh, specialization was actually homeopathy, which is as close as you can get to a placebo. Like it's literally a pill that's filled with water. Um, and even if you distill it down to just, you know, GPs that practice or at least that were certified <laughs> to practice homeopathy, uh, you know, the results were no different and arguably a bit better in terms of both mortality and, and de definitely better in terms of cost than with, with normal GPs. Um, so, yeah. That, yeah, that, that, that's fascinating. And you mentioned in your article, a lot of people in the U.S. kind of think a placebo is uh, taking a Tylenol or an aspirin or, you know, doing some self-treatment, but they feel like they've got to do something. And sometimes that can have some harm, some consequences. Yeah, I, I certainly think that's, that's the case. Now, um, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure for any given, you know, uh, drug, like how harmful it can be to take it as a sort of like, oh, you know, just in case, let me take, take you know, this pill. But there's definitely this um, feeling that, that people have that like, you know, they are sick or they're feeling a bit off and they must do something. And I, I assume it might be a feeling that propagates even to doctors, right? Like, oh, this person seems to be mainly fine. Like I wouldn't, you know, intern him in a hospital or nothing, you know, he's not dying, but like, it's reporting that something's bad. So like, okay, maybe let me try to see if something minor will help. Uh, and, you know, there definitely can be a sort of death by a thousand cuts um, issue. I think one of the most most interesting example here, which I encountered recently just because I, I had some, you know, knee issues and I ended up reading a lot on you know, that, that whole area of how, you know, let's say, um, soft tissue heals. Um, is uh, anti-inflammatory drugs, which actually, you know, like common sense 101 would dictate that unless you're actually, um, you know, risking death from a fever, uh, they may actually intervene in some of the processes which would ultimately help you heal. And, you know, I think a big example here again would be like, uh, let's say you've slightly, maybe not even sprained, but like injured your ankle a bit. And the first thing that everybody will tell you is like, oh, well, just take an ibuprofen for the pain and you'll be fine. But like one, one of the interesting things with ibuprofen is and with really all anti-inflammatory drugs, well, sorry, all uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, the steroidal ones work a bit differently, is that they will actually dampen the very platelet response that you need to form those collagen matrices for uh, the injuries to heal, right? So there are definitely cases in, in which it seems like these, you know, minor um, treatments, which do nothing, might add some compounding harm. Now, you know, I, it's not like we can be sure of this, but it, it seems to be to me to be one of those issues where I would um, really wonder to be more studies in this area, right? Like to actually look at like, are, are these things potentially um, you know, doing something harmful in the background, then you aggregate them over a lifespan. Now, you say in your article <clears throat> that you're not saying, quote, no treatment works, but it doesn't work all the time. And, and then you come up with three hypotheses, and I'd like to talk about each of those. One of them is the diagnosis is broken. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Yeah, so... Um... I think just, just to you know clarify the, the, the stance a bit, um, I think the way I think about it is not necessarily that like 
no treatment is better than treatment, right? Like if I had to take the choice, I would definitely have a medical system to treat me in the worst case scenario when, when something happens. But you know, it's more like, why are there so many interventions which on paper work so well, but in practice, when you look at um, actually providing people more healthcare, you don't see a lot of improved outcomes. There aren't these giant studies coming out and saying, you know, oh, look, you know, we, we gave these people a better class of insurance and look, they've lived for like 20 years longer. At most, you're picking over, you know, some slightly statistically significant effects. And a lot of the times uh, they're not even there. And, and I think one of the hypotheses, the first one that I have is, well, maybe it's because the, the trials that we do to test interventions are just more rigorous than normal day-to-day treatment, right? Um, so when you, when you go to a doctor normally, they might not take that much care in actually figuring out what drug or what intervention, you know, such as a surgery, uh, they, they prescribe you. Whereas in a trial, when you have very clear exclusion criteria and even very clear criteria along the study for, um, you know, when to cease treatment, um, those uh, those interventions might be much better aimed at people that can actually benefit from them, which is you know, in the interest of whatever companies is prototyping the drug and is how you should give a drug or really any intervention, right? Like find the, the cohort in which you're certain it has the most effects. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned this thing about r- randomized controlled trials, and we think of those as the gold standard. But, you know, as we saw in the vaccines, the COVID vaccines, they had a great <laughs> outcome in the trials. But then when they got out into the general public, we saw all kinds of uh, results. So it's real interesting because I think, you know, many times you, you might have a practitioner say, well, let's just try it because this trial exists and it showed some efficacy. Um, but you're saying that the public really needs to fully appreciate what these trials can and cannot tell us. Yeah. So, so and, you know, you bring up the, the vaccine issue, and I think actually that's a um, a very good point, because I, I would say that uh, in, in the case of vaccines um, for COVID, like the trials had fairly conclusive results. And, and I actually think those results were pretty well mirrored in the real world. It's just that the message of what the trials are actually showing was but probably not the one that was being sent publicly. Right. So like I think that the, you know, the main thing that was observed in trials and you know, why uh, I think you know, most doctors would have recommended and would still recommend and, you know, why I think, you know, I myself would always go for a COVID vaccine is that they reduce hospitalization and they reduce severe disease to a great extent. Um, and they also reduced infection rates, though not by as much. Um, and, you know, the, the studies, at least, mo- well, there are some studies that looked at this, but like the RCTs based on which the, the vaccines were approved, um, they didn't really look at transmission of COVID, right? And then when, when these vaccines came out in the wild, the, the first thing that was being parroted was this idea of like, you know, they will reduce transmission, which I mean, you know, to some extent, arguably they did, but it was definitely not, not there. Um, or, it, you know, at least the way I would see it, it was definitely not their most important effect. And I, I think more broadly, um, there is this, I mean, not issue, but like there is a, a thing with RCTs with randomized control trials where um, they will be designed to look for a positive effect um, and drugs will be approved based on the effect or interventions based on the effect of the intervention being positive. Um, but what positive means 
can vary a lot, right? So in the case of, let's say, a vaccine for smallpox, what positive means is like, you know, your chance of dying in a world where you have smallpox, which kills like half the population it infects and infects almost everybody is literally cut in half, right? Uh, what positive means for, let's say, an Alzheimer drug like aducanumab is that like maybe you will score like slightly better on a cognitive test as though your disease was progressing like, you know, one month or two months less than someone that's untreated. Right. And both of those like, oh, there is a very minor like, you know, cognitive decline decrease and like, oh, your chance of living to, you know, or of living like 40 years more has just doubled. Um like both of those could show up as a positive in an RCT and both of those drugs would be, you know, approved and used. But there, there's definitely an issue um, with the system not communicating quite properly what the hopes in terms of, um, you know, effects and how wide the effects will be and, and what axis those effects will be on are, are going to be. Um, and it, yeah, go ahead. Uh, Well, you know, I I wanted to ask you, you you say until we have more research on this, this concept that too much health care can be harmful, um, you have a personal workaround. How do you evaluate treatment? Yeah, so I I guess my and it's not really a workaround. It's just like everybody has to to, um, come up with a way to manage their health care. And I guess, you know, what I've converged upon now is to try to um, avoid contact with the medical system as much as possible, unless I can sort of like individually validate that there is a reason to do it, or unless I'm in actual dire straits, right? So like if, if I accidentally cut off a finger, I'm not, I'm not one of those crazy people that won't go to, to have it sewn back up, right? Um, but I, I definitely um, try to avoid contact with the medical system unless I know that I'm actually going to solve something and unless I've actually been able to you know, look at relevant studies to know that there is actual interventions that a doctor can do for me um, to solve that. So that, that's kind of my, my stance, broadly speaking. That, that sounds like a smart way to do it. Um, I have one more question to ask you. So in the U.S. and in, and in other countries, they have different systems. But in the U.S., we have generally uh, the government or private companies as third-party payers. So people are very removed from the actual exchange of value in that process. And I often wondered about this, whether that really has made us less responsible about making healthcare decisions. I'm always astounded by how much trust people put in the medical system. Um, And I think there's just sort of this expectation that it's always going to take care of problems. Do you suppose if we had more of a direct consumer model that people would be more careful about healthcare decision making? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that question veers a lot into the political. And my read on it with the U.S. healthcare system and, and really with healthcare systems everywhere is that they are an entangled mess. And I don't think really anybody agrees on or I don't think any, Everybody agrees on how to fix them, but I do think there's this odd situation where like everybody agrees that um, a lot of healthcare systems are broken. Uh, I do think that, you know, I, you know, I guess econo- economics 101 would dictate that a lot more consu- consumer, direct consumer spending, right? So people pay for their treatment with healthcare. 
you know, how much that would help, I don't know. Like I, my personal theory is that the, the issue is, is um, much deeper than that, right? Um, and a, a good example of that would be something like, oh, you know, you have a, a very expensive surgery that doesn't do much for people. And, you know, government is paying, let's say, a million dollars to subsidize that, right? Like, that's obviously bad. Everybody agrees it's bad. Um, but then, the you know, the okay, let's say you make it direct to consumer and you have that same surgery. And now you, you are in the position where people might feel um, required of to give their life savings because they have a, a dying parent, uh, which could get the surgery. So really, I, I think like the issue is closer to maybe explaining or figuring out collectively what are the bounds of medicine and, and really putting a cost number on, you know, what's it really worth to spend, like both as a society and as an individual in order to prolong life and like, you know, what quality must that life have and what, you know, what are the percentage number you associate uh, with that extension in order to actually do something. So, yeah, I, I, I doubt there is a, an easy answer here. And I would certainly come out in favor of like basic medicine being subsidized. So, for example, something like the COVID vaccines being subsidized, I think is an amazing thing or vaccination and other high impact interventions in general. Uh, you know, something like extremely expensive um, cancer drugs or, you know, Alzheimer drugs. Again, aducanumab, I think, is uh, a, a recent example that's that's had a lot of of light shun on it, like those being subsidized um, is obviously a much more controversial decision. I, I guess the problem ends up being more of a systematic issue, though. Like, again, very easy to fix if you have the powers to snap your fingers and do it. In practice, this like, you know, environment with a lot of actors with uh, goals that are are sometimes contradictory and like appeasing all of them is a, is a hard problem and will lead to an inefficient solution almost by definition. <laughs> Yeah. Well, well, this has been a fascinating subject. And, and I want to thank you for your very thoughtful article on this. I'll include a link in the of the article in our podcast notes. George Hosu, thank you very much for coming on to the podcast. Yeah. And, and uh, thanks a lot for having me. Um, glad to talk to you. Great. And if you enjoyed this discussion, please come back for more. We love spreading the free market message at the Heartland Daily Podcast. You can become a regular subscriber, give us a thumbs up on your favorite platform, and share our link, especially if you know anyone who loves going to the doctor. This is Anne-Marie Sheeper. 